All right. Don't really know how to start these. Just going <laughs> to play jazz with it. Welcome to a Wonus episode of Womance. Wonus, the vestigial organ <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> That's right. You can survive listening to Womance without listening to the Wonuses, but it's not like we're going to remove it from you as soon as you're born. No, definitely not. In fact, it might be a pleasant discovery for you. Like, don't skip them until they become a problem for you. Exactly. Until it becomes inflamed. <laughs> until it becomes inflamed. Okay, so for this Wona's episode, you can probably hear me wrestling my papers that were written on legal pad because we are not talking about a book. We're not. We are talking about... Cinema. Mm-hmm. We are going to be doing a few bonus episodes. I don't know if they're all going to be at once, but we're going to do a few bonus episodes that center on films that talk about romance. Novels and novelists. Yes, correct. Not romantic films. This isn't going to be about The Notebook, y'all. I don't want to, like, you know, <laughs> whet anyone's appetites. I actually think The Notebook would qualify. Mm. It's an adaptation of something that's largely considered a romance novel. Oh, we're doing adaptations, too? I thought we were just talking about cinema that deals with the genre. Well, I think dealing with the genre is a generous read of many of the movies <laughs> that we're going to talk about anyways. What I'm saying is, is like, it's a wonus, so we can do whatever we want. It's true. There are no rules uh, to the wonus. We, yeah, we don't really have to justify anything. Having said that, I do feel more qualified to talk about movies than I do romance novels. Mm. And it's not because I've watched more movies than I've read books. It's because I went to school for movies. There you go. Twice. So there you go. Laying out your bona fides. The tables have turned. Ah, okay. I am no longer the neophyte. I'm now the other one. Okay. What's the other one? Erstwhile expert. I'm the erstwhile expert. Is that what we refer to you as? I don't think we really referred to me as anything. We just, you referred to yourself as the neophyte. Although since you've read like 80 novels, I don't know that you're a neophyte <laughs> anymore, bud. I wonder when it stops. I think learning the tropes had the same conversation. Yeah. I still feel like an outsider in a foreign land. That's interesting. I started a romance book club with a friend of mine who loves romance, but she hasn't read anything pre-2006. And so I would talk to her sometimes and she's like, boy, I just feel like I don't know any of the history of this genre. And I just read like Courtney Milan and Alyssa Cole. And I was like, oh man, there's so much more than that. Also a lot of bad stuff. I think a lot of people who I would consider romance super fans don't know much about the history or haven't read any of the older stuff. It's very much like a genre that belongs to the moment. It's true. It really does. Although it certainly has a history. It does. And we see the ripples of. Please tune in to our AHA Shake Heartbreak series. Such a good series. For more detail on that. Also, I uh, wish that I had brought this up in Not the Girl You Marry, but she like shits on Kathleen Wodowis and I like got incensed. And oh, I was, like, yeah. Yeah, totally. Don't even fucking name drop the queen, all right? Like, no, I, I was like laying in bed up. last night and I remembered something else that upset me from Not the Girl You Married. And like my eyes <laughs> shot open. Like, it's a truly, it's a truly upsetting book if it can like cut through all the other anxiety I'm feeling to wake it's me up in the so middle of the night. True. I'm glad that we both had that experience. It was like, fuck, I really wanted to say that I was mad about that. All right. So, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about Romancing the Stone. Screenplay by Diane Thomas, directed by Robert Zemeckis, produced by and starring Michael Douglas and 
Kathleen Turner is our heroine. She sure is. What with, a dame. With appearances by Holland fucking Taylor yep. and Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito steals every scene that he's in. He does. So I think we talked about this yesterday. I think we can just kind of approach this the way we approach romance novels. Sure. Especially because this structure has a lot of fun romance stuff. And I became like really interested in, in Diane Thomas's process and, mm-hmm. and script development. And I learned a lot. It's a pretty fascinating story, this script. Do you want to tell the story of the script then? Yeah. So there's like lore behind it, but that's largely been disproven. The lore is Diane Thomas was working as a waitress in a diner in 1978. Michael Douglas, who has just coming down from the success, probably like two years of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. He comes and sits in her section. She uses it as an opportunity to try and sell her script, which is Romancing the Stone, and he Amazing. loves the idea. He actually went through regular channels to get the script in front of <laughs> Michael Douglas, but I love She really was working at a diner at the time when it was bought. That's so he exciting. buys the script in 1978. Michael Douglas really believed in the concept. It didn't get produced for quite a few years because... Douglas was under contract with I think it was Columbia and they only believed in the movie if they could get Burt Reynolds in the lead and Uh. Burt Reynolds turned it down and actually like a lot of big machismo actors of the time who Columbia Pictures may or may not be correct felt really strongly about turned it down and so he decided he'd just wait out his contract he continued to make films for them but he wasn't Mm going to work with them on Romancing the Stone and he'd use his own production company which is why it's called Corazon Mm -hmm. Productions um, which is a reference to the map in the film. El Corazon. But I got to read some of Diane Thomas's original script. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was initially like, what was happening in America in the early 80s with romance novels that made this kind of queue up or whatever? And there was a lot happening mm-hmm. in the romance novel development scene. But Diane Thomas actually wrote it in the 70s. And I was struck by the fact that she did use very much like insidery lingo. Mm-hmm. She referred to our heroine Joan as writing steamy romances, steamy westerns. I do love that she writes westerns. One of the things that's so great about this movie is that it opens inside one of Joan Wilder's romance novels as depicted in her mind as she's finishing it. Mm -hmm. And it's so good. The heroine in the novel that she's narrating is like sweaty and in like a chemise. It felt exactly like Kathleen Woodowis. Western would. Everything's just a little bit sweaty. And then, like, the heroine saves herself. Like, she stabs the bad guy in the heart. And then there's this amazing, like, there's the man who murdered my father, raped and murdered my sister, shot my dog, burned my farm, and stole my Bible. Oh my God. And then, it like, it turns he- out the pronunciation stole was a creative choice by Kathleen Turner. Amazing. And I loved it. But what struck me upon watching it so many years later, because this was a perennial favorite of sleepovers that I had, certainly as a child and all the way into my teens. So I've watched this movie many times. But like watching it through the lens of romance novels themselves, I was struck by the fact that Joan is writing characters who save themselves and Mm. then meet back up with their heroes. In the script, the original script, Diane Thomas actually specifies the age of the heroine as 34 and the oh, age wow. of the hero as 40, which is something that I was just reading that article you sent me. There was actually a rule for steamy romances. They had to be in their 20s, but they couldn't be like older than 26 oh, was one of the rules of the publishers. And so I thought that was really interesting. And you can really tell from Diane Thomas's original script, she envisioned the parallels between the romance novel, the actual 
adventure that we get in the film as being mm. way more clear. Like the hero's name is changed to Jesse, but in the original script, it's Jack, which is the name of Michael Douglas's mm-hmm. character. This is the movie that establishes him as a sex symbol, by the way. Uh, obviously, he's like... Like, this is the river <laughs> from which the tributaries of Fatal Attraction, Disclosure, like all of those movies that hinge on just like how riotously horny Michael Douglas supposedly <laughs> makes women. There's so much that's funny about that. But like he and Kathleen Turner have such insane chemistry and he's such a charm bomb, even though he's like genuinely a bad dude. He's like, also not that great looking. He's not. He's actually very odd looking and he's very like wiry. Like he's not yeah. certainly not a traditional 70s or 80s romance novel cover hero. This is one of the things where it's like hard for me to separate Michael Douglas person who I've seen in many films and like interacts with the world and like the character of Jack T. Colton because there's like ostensibly a cunnilingus joke in this film where yeah. like they fall <laughs> down the mudslide yes. and he like, lands face down in her open legs right her open legs and then he like looks up you know has this shit eating grin I immediately thought oh, I'm like just started cackling I did because like the thing that like Michael Douglas real person says is that the reason why he had throat cancer is because he got HPV from going down on so many ladies and being such a good lover which is like such an insane thing to say about yeah, your it's like, cancer it, but it was also like one of those weird humble brag things yeah. like on Oprah and he was like well it comes from performing oral sex and Oprah was like uh-huh <laughs> And he's like, I didn't always ask for it in return. It's like, that would not affect if you got HPV from world He's like, I always make sure my partners come first. And I'm like, God, Michael Douglas, you're such a fucking weirdo. Yeah, it, like nobody asked. <laughs> type thing. Literally nobody. The the other thing is like Michael Douglas takes the lead in this film partially because like no other male actors wanted to take it. Mm -hmm. And I found that really surprising because it's such a swashbuckling adventure role. Yeah, it is such a swashbuckling adventure role. And like what's funny when you search for it on like Hulu or Netflix, the other movie that comes up immediately is the first Indiana Jones. And at Mm. first I was like, huh, I don't immediately see that. But then I was like, oh, you know, like Karen Alan's character, Marion Ravenwood, is actually a pretty good corollary. And it's just, it is. It's a swashbuckling, like, matinee Mm -hmm. feature in the spirit that Robert Zemeckis loved to make in the 80s. And also, not surprisingly, the screenwriter, she actually died really soon after this movie came out in a tragic car accident. So this is her only film. But she wrote a first draft of Indiana Jones 3. Oh. And she set it in a haunted mansion. Amazing. (laughs) But she was the first writer, first draft on Indiana Jones 3, which I thought was hugely telling. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. That that was her next project after Romancing the Stone. Yeah. It was a hit. It was a hit. Yeah, a major hit. But to talk more about romance novels, I think you're exactly right. That opening scene does feel so Kathleen Woodowis. Mm-hmm. And there's parts where she's like bending over mm-hmm. and her sweatiness. And there's a couple things happening that I think are kind of at odds, which is the way her body is shown to us mm-hmm. and the fact that her face is always obfuscated mm-hmm. feels very male gazy. 
Totally. In a way that is not indifferent to what happens in those early sensual romances. Mm -hmm. But seeing it on screen really clarified it. You Mm -hmm. know, like, yeah, this isn't something I imagined. Like, this is something that is happening all the time. The heroine's body is always being put on display for the hero. But I think there's also something in obfuscating the heroine's face that feels very true for romance in that we, the reader, are meant to identify with the heroine. Yeah, that was immediately my sense. And like the fact that Jesse's face is also obscured so then we can put our like fantasy face on it. Thing that was so weird about watching it on film is that it's just so naked. And like part Mm -hmm. of the other thing that was like this very much felt like people view romance novels that Mm. move didn't feel like very charitable even if it is true. Go ahead. What's so fascinating is that yeah I see it I'm like this is what people think romance novels are but romance Mm -hmm. novels were not sexy. Romance novels were not bared bosoms until like a mere 10 years prior to this Mm -hmm. and Isabeau contemporary romances which is what the movie itself kind of is Mm -hmm. weren't sexual at all until two years prior to production. Yeah, I mean, and like that tracks with all the books that we've read. I couldn't get over how many boobs and nipples there were in this. Kathleen Turner's never wearing a bra. Ever, which I absolutely both loved and I like understood like wasn't for me. And so it was like those kinds of breaks that also like really brought home like how there's not a ton of sex in this movie, but there's also not a ton of sex in the bodice rippers of its contemporaneous era, like the 80s. There's yeah. like one or two sex scenes. Most of them are fade to black, which is exactly yeah. what happens in this movie. But like they're doused in sexuality. Everything's like, kind of sweaty. Yeah. And like and nobody's wearing bras and everybody's hair is getting like frizzy and there's like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So like this movie felt incredibly sexy without being sexual. There is this thing though, the progression of Joan's character through her car costuming and makeup, Mm -hmm. which is remarkable. In the very beginning of the movie, you can hardly recognize Kathleen Turner, who's already made body heat by this time. She's got this like very soft round face, Mm -hmm. gentle features. She's wearing a flannel nightgown. Yeah. She never wears a bra. She's not wearing a bra when she meets with her editor at a bar. Taylor (laughs) and has a creme de menthe and delivers her editor her pages via giant box of (laughs) paper, which is just fun to see. But she... As the film progresses, her beige business suit, complete Mm -hmm. with pussy bow, jacket, Mm -hmm. and kitten heels, Mm -hmm. starts to disintegrate, and her makeup starts to get more and more elaborate as I very much noticed. Totally. She has this amazing smoky eye. By the end, it's purple smoky eye. And I'm like, you (laughs) haven't showered in three days, and you've just walked through the mountains to Cartagena. How is your bronzer this perfect? That's one of the things about this movie that like is just like actually delightful oh and like God. the costume is my favorite first of all like we're primed to understand that this transformation is a metaphor because yep. jack grabs a machete and hacks off her kitten heels yeah and throws all of her other clothing into the jungle yeah and so this like not only loss of self but transformation of body into mm-hmm. something that's less contained is really beautifully done and fun so fun if i had gotten this script and I cared about my career as like good guy, I would read Jack and be like, oh man, this guy fucking sucks. We meet him and he is illegally stealing birds out of the jungle. Like that's how he's funding his big dream, which is simply a 
big sailboat to like fuck around in. Like all he wants <laughs> is a big boat. All he wants is a big boat. He's Which like, is so romance novel. Totally. And he's so selfish and he's genuinely like bad dude. It's, $375 on American Express Traveler's Checks. Love it. Absolutely love it. But he's such a charm bomb. Even the scenes like because they have a continuing war over her suitcase like once they've decided on his price which is the 375 uh, traveler's checks and she like walks away from her suitcase expecting him to pick it up and then he picks it up and she like smiles at him and she's like yeah you're gonna do that and then he drops it at her feet and like cut to next scene it's raining and she's dragging it behind her ah he's such a dick can we talk about our hero and heroine in terms of the objects that surround them sure because nobody feels their shit as much as Joan feels her own shit her apartment is exclusively decorated with her accolades and (laughs) cover art posters of her novels and she also exclusively drinks shooters I know shooter mini bar in her own home that's what she packs in her suitcase and she cannot untwist a cap of a shooter to save her life it's so cute I love it's such a flex I want a shooter mini bar now dude it's so deeply specific and she has so many of them there are like so many choices like there's this scene when she's like gonna celebrate and she's like ooh I don't want whatever this shooter is like straight vodka and she goes for like the brown shooter bottle which is ostensibly I don't know like fucking brandy like who knows she's yeah. like a million shooters and it's like Joan are you going down to the bodega and just buying like handfuls of shooter when they're <laughs> on sale like what the fuck are you doing are you just like what I imagine is like her publishers paying for her hotel at RWA and she's just <laughs> scooping the mini bar into her bag. Yeah, because she's thrifty. I also love that she's her cat. She's thrifty. She's so mad to pay someone $500. That was so good. And like her cat is so good. Her apartment's so amazing. But also just like genuinely her. Her cat named Romeo, obviously. Obviously. And she's got the gas fireplace. She actually has a very nicely appointed apartment in New York City. And like, I think people like her could afford those. Yeah, a romance writer. It's like steps away from like the fucking library. That's insane. Anyway, the 80s. But, but that's what's fun about movies is that you can see all these little pieces of a character, like the fact that she mm-hmm. orders creme de menthe when she's at the bar. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, she uses an autocorrect typewriter. Like mm-hmm. these little pieces of her life, like these details would bog a character down in mm-hmm. a romance novel, but they're really fun to like luxury in on your 30th watching of it's so true stone. and just like um, even and her big puffy coat which like why oh would you my take god that to just Cartagena? don't take that to Columbia <laughs> I just know. take a cab to the airport like if you're somewhere cold we live in Chicago so I feel like very qualified to give this advice mm-hmm. when you live somewhere cold and you're traveling somewhere hot via plane don't take public transit just take a cab so you get door-to-door service and don't bring your fucking coat it's so true that's such good advice it's worth it to not have to carry a coat around. Especially one that big. And like, I think that's one of the things that's so funny about Joan. Her choices at the beginning of the film seem imminently practical, right? The shooter, so she never has too big of a bottle by herself. And like her massive puffy coat because she lives in a cold place. And like her linen beige power suit. All of her choices, imminently practical, but like none of them are like fun. There's no frivolity to her other than her job. But I would say that's also true of our hero, Jack, who travels in fact more leanly than she does and is super practical for the jungles of Colombia. He has a puffy vest 
to keep him warm and (laughs) And a machete and a shotgun and his illegally and a leather backpack and a leather bag exclusively for his machete and shotgun which was amazing also I'd like this is I don't know my billionth watching but like it wasn't until I was paying this close attention for this episode that I noticed that he's wearing cowboy boots throughout the whole film and that he has these like muddy ass cowboy boots that's how we first meet him and I'm like why the fuck you wearing muddy cowboy boots in the jungle like why cowboy boots my guy but like he's wearing them and I think it's because he's so much shorter than Kathleen Turner. They're basically platforms for him. Whenever they can't put them at a weird distance. Oh my God, that's so true. Tall heroes are so important in film and in literature. So true. As we've discussed before. And it does seem, now looking back, thinking about the shot, like they're never really standing right next to each other. Mm -hmm. I think like the scene that they dance together is maybe the only time. And she's wearing flats and he's wearing heels. Yeah. That's so funny. (laughs) That is so funny. Um, Jones Michael covers Douglas. suck, by the they way. They do suck. They were quickly rendered. <laughs> they are not of the quality, although her font is the same as Joanna Lindsay, RIP. Mm-hmm. Her cover quality is not the same. No. And it's especially clear whenever they're blown up that large. Mm-hmm. Like movie posters throughout her home. Which is insane. My other thing is her sister travels with a giant portrait of the two of them together, which I think is so sweet and so ridiculous. It's- I also- <laughs> I also love like, that they have the same picture. Like, yeah. A piece of like set exposition that's just like, what are you talking about? She's going to travel with this giant portrait to Columbia. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the movie is whenever Holland fucking Taylor describes <laughs> Columbia as these macho countries. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the setting. Okay. I have lots of thoughts on this setting. Obviously, we just talked about a thriller romance. And so Wild Orchids is very much on my mind, which takes Mm -hmm. place in Mexico. And this film takes place in South America, Mm -hmm. which I think was much more in the public imagination than, or the American public imagination than as it is compared to now. Certainly like a failed state mentality Uh, in in the American imagination of these nations. Yeah. Yeah, like a wild place. But it was also home of magical realism. Mm -hmm. They filmed on location in Mexico. Mm. And it's just absolutely stunning. The settings. God, like when they used to like really spend money on movies, you know? Yeah, it's so lush. And I think that's part of what like adds to the revelation of character and like the Mm -hmm. movement of the plot where it's like, I think just really being there as opposed to like being on a green screen or like pretending that like Mendocino, California is Cartagena. Like it's Mendocino for Cartagena. I think it just makes such a difference in the believability of the backdrop but also in like I, I don't know the character's performance it does and one of my favorite things is that the choice of Columbia I think is interesting but I also think like the story as it's laid out makes sense only in Colombia mm-hmm. because you need the jungle you need the like mysterious waterfall mm-hmm. <laughs> you need the like drug lord element where they mm-hmm. like meet a drug lord in the jungle who's a huge fan of hers and helps them escape the corrupt military It's not one of those stories that could happen anywhere. And then they just randomly chose Columbia and put in like a couple of details to make it Colombian. What really struck me on this watch is how bad our white characters Spanish is, how relieved they are when other people immediately speak English. It's like expeditious for the film, right? Because like watching somebody that like muddle through Spanish is hard and takes up airtime. But like it was such a weird comment on like the economic 
economics of what was happening in Colombia and that like the drug lord speaks perfect English. In fact, he reads her English novels to his underlings on Saturday afternoons, which sounded really sweet, frankly. And they and they only speak Spanish, like right. they respond in Spanish. And so he's probably reading the book in Spanish, like translating. Right. And like, you know, they go to the hotel for like the fun festivals going on and he like is stumbling through his Spanish and the guy's like, yeah, we've got a fax machine. And he's like, oh, great. That's so great. And I was like, man, the like subtle colonial moves here are like really intense. And the fact that like our bad guys, other than like the paramilitary trooper, Ira and Ralph are fucking treasure hunters and they're like looting Colombia. Yeah. Do you think the reason that they're able to do this kind of commentary air quotes is because they didn't know any better than to be aware? Like it's, you know, what is water? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like, I don't think the movie's making a comment. They're just like, hey, it's easier. And everybody who wants to make money speaks English down there. Yeah, this is how it works. Yeah. So partway through the film, and I'm still not sure when this happens, they decide that they're not only going to deliver the map to her sister's kidnappers in exchange as like ransom, they are actually going to follow the map, find this mysterious treasure. El Corazon. Why did they make that choice? Okay, so like he makes that choice basically in the pot plane and he's a con man. So he begins to like sort of- The pot plane. Yeah, the pot plane, which I do want to talk about. So he begins to massage that idea into Joan Wilder and then they have this awesome dinner. He like buys her some clothes that are pretty and like she does her hair and they have this dance and then they have sex. And then she's like, why haven't you taken the map from me? And he's like, bah, 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 bah. And he has to like have it fucking Xerox so he can go get the stone. And then she's like, I've been thinking about something that you said. You said that we should go for the stone so that we have more to bargain with. And he's like, yeah, I mean, that is what I said. And she's like, let's do it, Jack. And he's like, great. And she's like, but if we have to give up the stone for my sister, he's like, of course, Elaine, my girl. And then there's this shot where they're like fucking making out and they're going to have sex again. And he pulls the map from under the bed and puts it back in her bag because he's a bad guy. There's not really a point at which he apologizes for that. He doesn't. Or that it's made clear that he's done that. Yeah. Um, Or that it's made clear to Joan that he's done that. Yeah. So the pot plane, (laughs) I think, is a crucial turning point. Yes, it is a crucial turning point. This made it clear to me that I've never read a romance novel with recreational drug use in it Mm -hmm. that wasn't like, my sister uses drugs and Mm -hmm. she's a bad person now. And so that felt distinctly like transgressive. If I read that in a romance novel, I would be truly shocked. Yeah. And I think like it's such a throwaway line too, where she's like, oh, marijuana. And he's like, you smoke it? Like all sarcastic. And she's like, I went to college. And I was like, yeah, Joe Wilder. But then they actually burn the marijuana to create fire and they get high and she gets the munchies and he gets upset that the Doobie brothers have broken up. I don't understand why romance novels don't use drug use, considering how how often everyone is getting shit-faced before they have sex for the first time. I think that's it, though, right? Where it's like, it's okay if our heroes and heroines, especially of that era, because romance is fairly conservative. It usually doesn't, like, break the tide. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's, like, constantly catching up. So it's okay if you drink, because drinking is socially acceptable, but if you do drugs, you're a bad person, and you should probably, you know, get five to life. Yeah. On this watching, I was obviously thinking about watching for the podcast and how is this a romance Mm -hmm. novel movie. But I think that, like, scene really clarified a shift for me. Like, maybe when it was a screenplay, it was a romance novel. 
novel. Mm -hmm. But once you get people like, you know, Robert Zemeckis involved, you know, the director's vision and everything, I think it sort of moves into like the movie references are much clearer to me than the romance novel references. Mm -hmm. Somebody watched The African Queen and everyone's been trying to remake The African Queen. And I actually think Romancing the Stone gets really close to that same kind of sense of fun and, Mm -hmm. and flirtation that The African Queen does, but also has, you know, just the same adventure elements. And then I'm like, well, no, because romance novels at the time, the historical ones Mm -hmm. were very adventure based. Very. The thing that didn't exist was contemporary thriller romances. Like it just did not exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, like even the pot plane itself that functions as a moment of both truth telling for both of them. Like, so it's like our first scene of real vulnerability from Jack because he tells her about his goal for the fucking boat, which is sucks. And then she's like taking him to task about like how selfish he is and how he's not a real man or an honest one. He saves her life from the snake. Like that's like a turning point in a romance, like first vulnerability, first like I see you type stuff. And the fact that it takes place while they're both getting high. I feel like I've read romance novels where like somebody gets drunk and says the true thing. So that felt very romance novel-y to me. That feels movie-y to me too. That's like basic narrative. Like you have to have a moment of vulnerability in order to create a relationship. Mm-hmm. And certainly happens in African Queen uh, with the help of a little chemical substance. But I don't think a romance novel would ever, well, not would ever, has ever used marijuana that way. No, not and that I I've think read. When I was looking at it, I was like, well, I think the color story of the film might be commenting on romance as it exists in Joan's mind because the Western romance scene that we see is very beige. Mm-hmm. And then we go into her apartment, which is very beige. And mm-hmm. then when she gets on the bus that she thinks is going to Cartagena, it's very beige and her life doesn't really take on or the film uh, and therefore her perspective doesn't really take on a lot of color until mm-hmm. she's taken on this adventure. Yeah. And we never see like her romance novels again. It's not like we get another scene of her books. No, although they're that. referenced a lot. Her romance novels are just peopled throughout the book, which is always really funny. So like there's the drug dealer in the small town and like all of his folks who love her books and like talking about it. But also Danny DeVito has her book throughout the film and he begins like sleeping in his car following them and he's reading it. I think that's the shift because we are constantly seeing her absolutely awful author photo like as a visual reminder of like how this journey is like opening her up. Having her author photo, which is monochrome constantly thrown up against her as she gets more colorful it's a very strange visual cue frankly because it's like we don't actually need that because we can see what's happening on screen so to have it over and over again feels almost overdone but anyway I do feel like it, it could be seen as like her understanding of life her understanding of experience is what is getting put into these romance novels and it's ultimately bland stuff. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a lot of nuance. I think you're right that they only show the one book Mm -hmm. and I think that reminder showing her author photo on the back in black and white is an anchoring point as to be like showing progress in Mm -hmm. her character because she is the central piece of this film. She is. And in that way, I think that brings us to Chiclet versus romance. Oh, okay. Because 
her relationship with her sister is really the inciting factor for her adventure. Oh, yeah. Things kind of go off the rails alongside of our hero, Jack. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if their romantic relationship is the central mover in this movie at any point. You know, I don't think it is. And I think, like they're moved through the circumstances of their adventure like the discovery of the pot plane is the adventure to get the map to the sister and then like Pepe is the place to get the phone like all of the Mm -hmm. moves like their their relationship is along for the ride but the moves are to save the sister yeah and there's not even a point at which Jack is like prolonging the adventure by saying like oh we should go get the jewel because he wants to spend more time with her like that wasn't really even nodded at no, that is not his motivating factor for that. I think there's like, yeah. that's really interesting because there's, that is very interesting because there's this moment at the very end where like they've been separated. He has the jewel. She's in Cartagena. She's like going to go to the fort to rescue her sister. And there's like this amazing shootout and stuff. But like Jack is late. And, like there's this real fear that he's not going to show up. And then like this alligator swallows the jewel and he goes after the alligator and then she's like crying out for him to help her. Yeah. And then she ends up rescuing herself. And like he gets up there just to like hug her and be like, you're okay. Yeah. And then he shows up with a boat in Manhattan. Yeah. With sails unfurled. (laughs) Sails unfurled. And the boat's called the Angelina, which was the name of her heroine. Yeah. Most recently published book. But yeah, for me, if this were a book, I would think it was Chicklet. Because to me, Chicklet is about a woman's personal progression. The romantic mm-hmm. relationships that happen around that just happen around that. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie like acknowledges that. Like Jack never really like truly grows. You know, like he mm-hmm. dives off the fort to like tackle the alligator and make it cough up this like whatever emerald. Yeah. And like the thing that he says to her, which is actually just amazing, and like the swelling like soprano saxophone, I'm like, I refuse to be charmed by this insipid instrument. Instead, I'm like, of course, I'm deeply charmed. And he's like, you're going to be okay, Joan Wilder. I was like, done, super done. I'm like, I don't need him. I don't need him to show back up. Like when with the last scene of her in New York and her hair is all out and like she's made her publisher cry for the first time and she's just like got her groceries. And I'm like, anywhere you go, Joan Wilder, you're a star. Get it, sis. Yeah. And it really really is like the moment that they go separate ways they go over a waterfall and she ends up on one side of the river and he ends up on the other and he's Mm -hmm. like you know we'll meet back up again you do see her suddenly become self-conscious again about you know what she's wearing Mm -hmm. and how she looks but then at the end she realizes she has the tools she was the adventurer the whole time yeah exactly (laughs) and I think you're right she's capable of problem solving her way out of this without Jack yeah and like and that's about personal growth rather than a romantic relationship. Totally. And I think like it's nice to have the romance affirm that personal growth. And yeah. I think that happens in romance novels a lot. I just recently for funsies read a Courtney Milan novel where he's like, I can't be with you, but you're going to be okay. Of course they meet back up. And I think that's actually a really nice move. And the fact that it comes where like the sweep begins to feel like this is like where the HEA would happen. And the mm-hmm. fact that he dives away. To the- go get his boat. He's got his own shit. Exactly. And so like the HEA is actually like like 
the very final move of the epilogue. It's like, I don't even need that now. Joan's fine. Jack's fine. He's still pretty selfish. It would have been fine if we just saw the boat and didn't have to see him on it. You know what I mean? Like the suggestion that he was there would have been enough. Well, I think this movie would be just as satisfying if it was just a platonic friendship. Mm -hmm. Like if they didn't have sex after the night of dancing. Mm -hmm. I think Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas, and Danny DeVito, and all of the ancillary characters are strong enough that we don't have to rely on a relationship, kind of sparking relationship between two people to keep us interested. Like any of these singular people stands on their own, and the story is great. Yeah, their romance, it's fun, so I can see why they did that. I also think it's like pretty typical of adventure stories to be like, oh, and then they kiss, right? Yeah, like there isn't... and then they kiss is exactly right. Yeah, and <laughs> that's the next thing that happens. And I think it's really rare for adventure stories to sublimate a romantic storyline. Oftentimes it's like, this wasn't necessary, and then it'll be shoehorned in anyway. Yeah, exactly. This feels less shoehorned in, and yeah. I think that owes a lot to the fact that she is a romance novelist. Yeah. And I wonder if it would feel different if romance wasn't her profession. Right, if she were just like a high-powered lawyer or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that she's a romance novelist because I think that like gives really fun turns in the movie. But yeah, it does make it interesting, but I'm not sure how important that is. I don't think it is that important because there's never a moment where he says something like, you know, life isn't like your books. Well, there is the moment when they go and they get the treasure. Uh huh. And based on the map, they find this terrible Easter bunny statue. Uh And she says, wait, in Mm -hmm. my first novel, Treasures of Lust, Mm -hmm. the treasure was inside the statue. But it feels like they could have been like, oh, let's break open the statue. Like mm-hmm. they should have thought of that in any ways. And also like the idea that she's referencing her own romance novel is like a place of authority on treasure hunting. I love how much she stands her own work. I know she really loves it. There's some like weird ass pre-Columbian jokes too, where I'm just like, you guys. Did they ever make giant movie posters of romance novel covers? You know, I'm sure they did. I just don't know when they would have stopped. Hey gang, Morgan here, letting you know this episode of Womance is brought to you by Into Her by J.A. Huss, available now on audible.com. The three perspectives of this angsty, MFM page-turning read are brought to life with the vocal talents of Savannah Peachwood, Teddy Hamilton, and Tad Branson. Those three sound like they could be characters in a romance novel themselves. They bring to life the story of Into Her. Hitmen, AJ, and Logan are professional mobsters and spending a sexy night stranded with their mark, Yvette, wasn't in the plan. But one night changes everything and they soon find themselves plodding away out of the job and the mob. It sounds like crossover fic from True Life, I'm Polly Amorous, and The Sopranos. Totally thrilling. Author J.A. Huss has hit the USA Today bestsellers list 21 times in the past five years, and her audiobooks have been nominated for a voice arts and an Audi Award, so you know you want to experience her work via her audiobook available at audible.com. But don't just take it from those well-respected institutions. Take it from readers just like you. One Amazon review says, just when you think you know exactly what to expect from J.A. Huss, she proves that you know absolutely nothing all caps exclamation point she told us what it was about kinda and assumptions were made and in every single way I was absolutely wrong in the most delightful frightened turned on way hot cha cha delightful brightening and sexy sounds like a total whoa so be sure to go to audible.com and pick up Into Her by J.A. Huss mwah 
You know, I have to say, I think our conversation is gesturing towards our larger question of the HEA. I agree. Because the ending does remind me of our conversation about Catherine Ashe's The Prince. Ugh. Love that book. Which really provoked a lot of stuff re-HEA for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That episode's on the syllabus of that romance class. And so we've gotten some DMs on Instagram (laughs) about that recently. But I I firmly believe that there is a difference between romance and chiclet as it is women's fiction. Is that the... I mean, women's fiction, it's so weird to like... PC term we're asking for. I mean, I would say it's not even looking for a PC term. It's looking for like a non-derogatory term. But even women's fiction, for whatever reason, feels derogatory where it's like, only women are interested in this. And I'm like, because it has a main character who happens to be a woman. And so like that subcategory, I don't think there is ever going to be a good term for it. But yeah, chiclet, women's I fiction. I like chiclet because it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it's fancy. Um, and I'm kind of sick of like the apologism around women's work, such as making cartoon covers and oh changing the name of chiclet instead of a project of like re-ownership. I would love to be in a situation wherein I told men in publishing that they can't call it chiclet, but I can. Any space in publishing, one of the first times that I sent a short story out to be published, like the person who read the slush pile was like, you know, it works in a lot of ways, but it's just way too chiclet for what we publish. And I was like, oh, because it has like two female characters talking to each other like what is chiclety about this and like what is chiclet yeah and I think like so in that way it's just like I think you're right we need to take back that term and I don't think that chiclet and romance are natural enemies I think they are natural Venn diagrams and I think it's really important Mm. to be like chiclet does not have to have an HEA romance does the Hmm. HEA is less important than just the simple fact of like centralizing a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. like that's the key mover Mm -hmm. and I think like you said a piece of chiclet can have a romance but it's like and also as opposed to the whole deal right and I think this is one of those situations where the central relationship wasn't the mover and the shaker of the action and the story Mm -hmm. was in no way a catalyst and the HEA that we get was also kind of unnecessary so it it did I guess this exercise is more than just talking about a movie we both like such a good movie God, Michael Douglas heartthrob. Who knew? Well, Michael Douglas. I mean, what goes from here? That's the thing. Like, you just have to cast yourself as a sex symbol one yep. time. And, and then everybody believes you. It's Glenn Close and Sharon Stone from here on out. <laughs> and Demi Moore from here on out. And Gwyneth Paltrow. What movie was that? It's the one where he tries to have her murdered. He's like the bad husband, but also like has bagged Gwyneth Paltrow. God, what is the name of that movie? Viggo Mortensen's in it. Or maybe they're trying to murder him. I don't remember. A perfect murder. There it is. 1998. And of course, his spy movie with Catherine Zeta-Jones, wherein they fell in love. It's true. Kathleen Turner really launched this guy. She really did. (laughs) And that's the thing is like, there is one sex symbol in this movie at the time of its release, and that is Kathleen Turner. Truth. She has already been in body heat. 
mm-hmm. and uh, was trying to show her range. And yeah. she did by not wearing eye makeup for the first half of the movie. And then turning up that smoky, amazing eye for the second half. Mm, an amazing cheek bronzer. Yeah, she looks great. She does. Even as her linen suit is being destroyed, I was like, ooh. Oh, it looks better strip. and better every time. Yeah. Every like, time. I think it kind of takes liberties. Like, I don't think they actually just, like, took that skirt suit and progressively, like, tore up different <laughs> versions of it. I think they made different suits. Yeah. But I am not mad at it. And that is very true of romance novels like as long as the overall experience is positive plot holes are welcome I think that's actually super true and that's like one of the things where it's like what pushes a book over from what I'll forgive it for and like what would hold it back from me forgiving it and I think it's like this charm factor and this movie is so charming so even like mm-hmm. weird plot holes that don't get solved I'm like meh that's alright yeah who's gonna get mad yeah. who would hold that against it I think this is really good well I'll tell you what it may not be a romance but it's definitely Definitely a romance. Oh, forever in our hearts, always. Okay, cool. So anything else? Any parting thoughts? Oh, where can they watch it? You can stream it on Hulu. That's where I streamed it. Yeah, you can stream it on Hulu. It is not on Netflix, but they do have a lot of other stuff, including like searching for romancing the stone on Netflix is always like always the one time I've done it. Always. <laughs> I know. The one time I've done it. Every time. Every time. I type in romancing the stone to Netflix instant streaming. But super worth it to look at the categories that it like pulls up when you're like, oh, you met Romancing the Stone. How about these other films related to it? It's all of the Indiana Joneses, obviously The Mummy, mm-hmm. but also yeah. National Treasure. And I was like, ooh, I remember that people really like that movie. And like, that's like a weird spot in Nicolas Cage's career. And like, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, I get why we've tied it together. However, it seems to me that Michael Douglas is way more charming and the jokes are way better in Romancing the Stone, but cannot I would confirm. say Romancing the Stone is one of those old movies that does hold up really well and definitely better than The Mummy which is always your problematic fave. God I love The Mummy. It's so good. Oh man. It just genuinely is. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode this Wonus. 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 Thank you guys so much for listening. Watch Romancing the Stone. Maybe get out your soprano sax. For sure get out your soprano sax. Tear up your suits. You're not going into the office anyways. It's true. And go on an adventure via your television set or laptop. (laughs) If you can't read, just watch Romancing the Stone. Yeah. All right. Do we say loosen your stays but never your principles on wonuses? We do. Loosen your woes but never your nusses. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Nice. Mwah. (laughs) Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang 
hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.